0: Military, Chapter 5, Part 1, Colorblind
1: I walked in the front door of the recruiting center and froze. It was the first time I had seen people in uniform up close like this. One guy on the right side of the room was doing pull-ups on a portable chin-up bar and dropped down when I walked in. I looked behind myself, feeling like I must have walked in through the wrong door. A voice called out from the far end of the room.
0: Hey, welcome, how can I help you?
1: I felt weird yelling across the room, so I quickly walked over to his desk. I just have a few questions about joining, I said in a low voice while trying to ignore the pull-up dude who was now staring at me.
0: Well, come sit down, let's chat,
1: my new recruiter said, motioning me over to sit in front of his desk. I sat down, noticing the squeakiness of the chair in the silent room. We talked about my experience and what I hoped to get from joining. I had already made up my mind that I would only work in something medical related. If they didn't have that, I wasn't going to join. I knew little about the military, but I had heard that medics weren't allowed to carry guns. I was joining to help people, not shoot people. I'm only interested in medical jobs, I want to be a nurse someday, so I hope to learn in the military and get money for school. I tried to sound firm since I had heard recruiters try to talk you out of stuff or lie about things just to get you to join. He pulled out a manual and started scanning the different jobs. He stopped on something he called a 4N flight medic. He described the job as an ambulance EMT but in a helicopter. He'd drop behind enemy lines and provide medical support, transportation, and evacuation. He might as well have just pointed to the advertisement on the door and said that it was an insane idea, checking all my boxes and then some. All I had to do was score high enough on the ASVAB test and get through MEPS.
0: Let's fill out some paperwork and then we'll get you scheduled.
1: He said as he rummaged through the drawers in his desk. He pulled out a folder and opened it to a stack of papers inside.
0: Now, before we get any further, I have to ask, have you ever been arrested for anything and have you ever done any drugs at all?
1: My excitement over the prospect of my new journey had distracted me from seeing this question coming. The question I had rehearsed in the parking lot the previous four days hit me as if I hadn't ever considered it. I stuttered and stammered but quickly recovered with a sly laugh. Ha ha, me? Do drugs? No, 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 that stuff terrifies me. I've never been interested. We stared at each other a little while, and then I added, and I've never been arrested. I've had a few traffic tickets, though.
0: Now those don't count. As long as they're paid, you should be good.
1: He then reviewed the paperwork I needed to fill out and the references I would need to contact. We just moved right past the drug question, and I realized this would be much easier than I thought. I bought in a swab study book and tried to remember how to do math. I had a few weeks to study for the exam, but it didn't feel like it would be enough time. I was 25 years old and hadn't seen some of this material in over 8 years. I treated it like homework and forced myself to do math problems at the bar. It became fun. I felt like an old lady doing Sudoku puzzles, but with algebra. When the time came to test, I met my recruiter at his office. He gave another dude and me a ride to MEPS, which was located on base. We climbed into the back seat of his sedan, and the other future airman introduced himself to me. His name was Serling Stilver, like Sterling Silver, but Serling Stilver. He talked to me the entire ride to maps, but I didn't hear a word he said. I just kept thinking about how stupid his name was. I kept thinking that Serling isn't a normal name, but neither is Stilver. Then I'd think about how stupid his parents must have been. The recruiter finally called back from the driver's seat.
0: We're here boys, get your identification ready.
1: I snapped out of my daydreaming and looked around at the base we were entering. My anxiety tripled when I saw the guards at the gate were all packing heat and looked overly serious. I hadn't noticed I was holding my breath until after my recruiter handed me back my license, and I relaxed again. We pulled up to a building with large letters that read maps above the door. Serling and I both climbed out of the car and went inside. The exam was relatively easy until I got to the math portion. There were an unnecessary amount of physics questions and I hadn't seen anything about any physics in my study guide. I did my best to answer them, but I was entirely out of my depth. I finished the exam before Stilver, but I didn't wait for him. I just headed to the next MEPS station alone, where things got less friendly quickly. I was suddenly in trouble with everyone I talked to. It was exactly like the DMV. I got in line behind other males I assumed were headed into the military too. New recruits usually have a distinctly uncomfortable look of fear and uncertainty on their faces. They had me walk back and forth on my heels from one side of the room to the other, lift a 50-pound weight, and then tested my eyes and ears. They stripped us naked and examined our butts for some reason. I'm not sure exactly what they were looking for back there, but they looked very closely. When he saw the scars on my arm, he asked, What are these? Construction accident, I said, holding my wrist pronated to make the scars appear more on the side of my arm than over the wrist. His eyes narrowed, but he moved along on his checklist. Toward the end of the ordeal, they asked me again. Have you ever done any drugs? I confidently responded with a, no, that was the right mixture of surprise and offended. Then they'd ask again. Not even once? No, I haven't. This is your last chance. If you
2: say no and they find out once you get to basic training, you can be tried for lying on your paperwork
1: and you will go to jail. Holy shit, I cursed in my mind. Thoughts of that mass surveillance database popped into my head again. I panicked a little and started drumming up my own conspiracy theories in my head. Can they do a lie detector test? Well, they do a lie detector test. My brother's words echoed in my ears. The military will lie to you if it serves the mission. I was here to serve my country and would lie to it if I had to. I considered admitting to some marijuana use. Lies are easier to maintain when they contain some truth, but I fully committed. No, not even once I lied. I left the MEPS building and headed to meet my recruiter in the parking lot. Serling was sitting in the front seat of the car, and he kept his head down when I got in. The ride home was strangely quiet, and we dropped Serling off at his house instead of going straight back to the recruiting office as planned. When the recruiter and I got back on the road, he told me Serling had failed the ISMAB, and they never sent him over to complete his physical. My stomach dropped, that meant I had at least passed, but what if I scored on the lower end? I had signed all that paperwork. I better not get put into some security forces job. Imagine the irony if I ended up being a police officer anyway.
0: You scored a 95, Hamilton. Good job. Let's go back to the office now and we'll get you situated for that forehand position.
1: He looked genuinely proud of me and I was stunned. Once back to his office, I sat in the squeaky chair in front of his desk. I patiently waited as he went through the files I was given at MEPS. He would read something from my folder and then cross-check with the manual on his desk.
0: Oh no, no.
1: he said, his eyes narrowing as he put one finger on the file and another on the manual. He leaned closer and then repeated it. Oh no, sir, I asked. One of those files must contain the mass surveillance data, I thought.
0: Are you colorblind?
1: He asked. I knew I was colorblind, but I hadn't ever been tested for it. When you and I first moved to Texas, we went out to buy stuff to decorate the house. I had my own bathroom with blue wallpaper, and I picked out a blue soap dish, blue towels, and a blue shower curtain. I threw it all in your shopping cart, and you asked me what I was doing with a look of shock and disappointment on your face. We argued about whether or not the bathroom was green while still in the store, then we argued in the truck on the way home, and then we argued about it in the bathroom when we got back home. I knew one of us was colorblind when we walked into the bathroom, and we both said, See, I I told you." you. Yes, I think so. I laughed a little remembering the test I took at MEPS and how badly I had done. I was shown a circle of small, multicolored dots surrounding a number in the middle, also made of dots. Out of the ten images I was shown, only two of them had apparent numbers in the middle. The rest just seemed like dots, nothing else. I couldn't even guess anything on most of them. Well,
0: you can't be a flight medic if you're colorblind.
1: Oh. I said dejected. I hadn't realized that this was what that meant, and it was suddenly less funny.
0: You can't do anything medical. They all require color vision. I think it's because of the lights on the aircraft, the medical equipment. You have to be able to distinguish them based on color.
1: He was cross-referencing his two manuals, my records, and sometimes typing something into his computer.
0: Are you sure you only want to do medical? You tested high enough to do any job in the Air Force.
1: No. I flinched at the unintended harshness of my voice. I'm only interested in medical jobs. He continued looking for a few more minutes and said, Well
0: now, wait a second, here's one.
1: He turned the manual around and pushed it toward me, his finger pointing to a job labeled 4A0X1, Medical Admin. He explained that this one was more like a medical secretary, very different from a deployed helicopter nurse. I wanted to say no, but I had already come so far. I was so close to this new idea and had already bought into it. The recruiter did his best to spice up the medical secretary job but it didn't sound like I'd be saving any lives or dying anytime soon. I sat on it for a few minutes before deciding to go for it. Reluctantly, I said, yes, let's do it. He tried to smile away a frown, but his lips just made a straight line as he nodded.
0: Uh, There's one more thing. That position isn't available in Austin. There's only one spot open, and it's in California.
1: Part 2. Open Cabinets California. I was a kid from Montana who spent his teen years in Texas, but I looked and acted like the California kids I had seen in movies. I didn't know much about California except that skateboarding was born there, everyone surfed, and all the women were blonde. I knew a few people who had moved to California, they had all gone to LA, and were trying to make it. I had never once realistically considered moving there myself, but now the chance had fallen into my lap. My recruiter pulled up a map of California and showed me where the base was located. Theoretically, you could swim in the ocean in the morning, snowboard in the afternoon, and then camp in the woods that night. On a map, the base looked like it was a hub in the middle of the most amazing places. The city where it was located was steeped in history as being one of the first gold-rush towns, and I assumed it was full of skate parks. In reality, it was just a dirty armpit surrounded by nothing for an hour on every side, but I'd learn that truth much later. The admin job was a significant disappointment that I wasn't expecting. Still, the idea of heading to California, the place I was potentially always meant to be, had me excited again. The other downside of losing my selected job was that the timeframe for getting to basic would also change. Instead of shipping out immediately, I'd have to wait three months, and I only had a month left on my apartment lease. I spent my last month in Austin playing water volleyball, running a mile each morning, and I had cut back significantly on alcohol. It was the best I'd felt in a long time, and you and Shannon were proud of my choice to serve my country. My cyclical depression was on the upside since I was back on track and had a goal. When my lease expired, I moved back in with you to wait for my spot in basic training to open up. You had moved from Colorado and were now living in some tiny podunk town in Utah. If the base I was moving to was an armpit, then the place you had just moved to was squarely between the butt cheeks of Utah. The boredom of Mormonism quickly smothered the healthy progress I made in Austin. You were highly stressed in your new role at work, and I recognized your tired demeanor that I hadn't seen since I left Colorado. Seeing you this way, I would always take it personally. I knew it was because of work, but I would subconsciously take offense if being around me didn't make you feel any better. Your snappy, stressed-out attitude was always a trigger for my depression, and I started spending more time at the Rusty Spurs Saloon. I overdrank one night and called you to pick me up from the bar. A trigger for drinking can be just about anything. It depends on what you think you get out of it. For some people, boredom can be the trigger. For me, things that triggered my depression also triggered my urge to drink. Drinking helped me feel less depressed and gave me a false sense of being happy. Being inebriated helps silence the trigger, but it can be disastrous if you are triggered while already drunk. There's no perception to change or feelings to numb. You can't alter your mental state any further, and now you're stuck dealing with the very thing you were attempting to avoid. On this night, I was triggered as soon as we entered the house. It was late, and I had woken you up in the middle of the night to get me from a bar on the opposite side of town. You were doing your best to entertain me for a little while before going back to sleep. I was making myself a snack, so I grabbed a water glass and plate from the cabinet. As always, I left the cabinet doors open, and you followed behind me, shutting them with a frustrated vigor. You mentioned how much you hated it when I left them open and unintentionally pressed the trigger. I wasn't a mean or angry drunk, I was a funny drunk that was off in the life of the party. Had anyone else mentioned a weird quirk about me at that same moment, I would have laughed it off, or at worst, I would have become increasingly mischievous and opened all of the cabinets in the house when you went to bed. The point is, had anyone else mentioned the cabinets, it wouldn't have been a trigger for me. My depressed alcoholic brain made several unconnected linkages between the cabinets being open and how much you love me. Believe me, I fully understand how crazy this sounds, but I'm just telling you how it works. I don't make the rules, I'm just crippled by them. A trigger is something that gives an alcoholic the urge to drink. They are different for everyone and can be either positive or negative. One of my positive triggers was drinking beers with friends while skateboarding. Skating is scary, and alcohol is like liquid courage. Having a few beers during the session makes you more willing to try new tricks and push the boundaries. Another example of a positive trigger is playing music with people. A little buzz can help get you into the groove and relax on stage. These are positive triggers because they enhance activities that bring about joy. They can also lead to alcoholism because you eventually get to a point where you have to have a few every time you skate or play music. Negative triggers are almost always more destructive. Negative triggers, at least for me, are the ones that are associated with depression, lowered self-esteem, and insecurity. When my brother puts me down, that's a negative trigger that I cope with by drinking heavily. I can feel my trigger activate when you're stressed out and start getting snappy with me. I get immediately overwhelmed by the urge to drink and usually give in with little resistance. Negative triggers can also be more damaging because they are the ones that can activate when you're already drunk and unable to cope with them. When you brought up the cabinets, my brain went back to trying to sit on the arm of the chair many years ago. When you walk into the kitchen after a long day of work and see the cabinets open, your first thought is my laziness. I get it, we don't get to pick our pet peeves, but a part of me wishes that you'd see the cabinets open and be reminded that I'm home. In a perfect world, those cabinets would change your mood for the better. You'd walk through the door and throw your briefcase down. You'd untie your shoes and untuck your button-up shirt. When you walk into the kitchen and see those cabinets, you would think, Denver is home. Fuck work, I'ma go fishing with my boy. You also have to remember the headspace I was in at the time. I was awaiting the military with an enlisted death wish, which made me think about how things would be when I was gone. Would you miss those cabinets being open? Why do we have to wait until we lose someone to realize we miss the things that used to annoy us about them? When you are triggered while drunk, there is no option for coping. You can drink to silence a trigger, but not if you're already drunk. Instead, it's all you can focus on, and now you're too drunk to let things go. That's how a simple comment about a cabinet became about how they'd all be closed when I was dead. I was holding on to so many negative feelings, and those cabinets opened the floodgates. That's how we got into an argument about my stepbrother. Part 3. Old and Tired Jeremy was different from us, and it was hard to understand him. We all pushed him to conform to our personalities, but he never fit in with us. He was more into video games and reading fantasy novels than he was into roughhousing and watching football. We mean teased him into changing anything we found weird and gave him terrible nicknames. This stuff worked well on me growing up because I wanted to fit in and be like you and Shannon. I wouldn't realize how big of an impact that would have on my psyche until I was much older, and now I felt guilty for being so hard on him. There was nothing wrong with Jeremy. He was a special kid with unique interests that we didn't appreciate. We couldn't understand why he would get so excited about dorky things, and we never tried to learn from him. Instead, we beat him down every time he'd get excited and forced him to like what we enjoyed. We relentlessly teased him until he stopped being different, even if he had only changed on the outside. The longer it continued, the more he felt ashamed of the things he found remarkable. He would feel uncomfortably out of his own skin trying to meet our expectations a feeling I could relate to, and I now felt terrible for having done the same to him. This random assortment of complaints came out in a sloppy, drunken rant in the middle of the night as I tried to defend him, I accuse you of being so tired from work that you were missing out on our lives, I told you that you were so critical of Jeremy, that you were failing him as a father figure, and that you were too preoccupied with work to notice how miserable he was. I was defending him, but I was speaking from my own experience with the emotions. I could tell the words I said to you that night hurt you. I regretted saying it all the next day. It wasn't how I wanted to say those things, but I was happy I got them off my chest. I started spending more time to myself after that to avoid the awkwardness. One night, I was drinking in the basement, playing with a chord progression on the guitar and looping it through my line 6 DL4. As the song started to come together, I thought about the career journey I was about to take. I knew it would be stressful, and I could see myself coming home drained each day. I'd take my shoes off at the door and then eat something cold. I would have skipped lunch that day because it was so busy, but stress would have killed my appetite for dinner anyway. I'd only be eating because I knew it would help relieve the headache I was trying to cure with a handful of Tylenol. I closed my eyes and started singing to the chords that were repeating on their own through the loop pedal. It was, at first, just a melodic idea, and I sang pure gibberish. I kept singing and lyrics began to form as I relaxed into the thought process. Writing music can be cathartic as you open yourself to thought and let the beat and tempo guide your words. Often, things come out you don't expect, or you say something that, in any other setting, you would have shied away from as you explore your embarrassment or shame. The following lyrics would eventually form. being spoken by you, the idea is that I've had my head in the clouds, not taking anything seriously, your advice is that to live a successful life, one must live on the ground, focused on the work at hand, we must get our heads out of the clouds at some point, settling down was a prominent fear of mine, I thought getting my head out of the clouds meant I had to stop playing music, riding a skateboard, and painting, the next verse is spoken by me, expressing the fear that if I came down out of the clouds, I'd grow old, Like Rufio and the Lost Boys in Hook, I wanted to stay young and ride my skateboard forever. The chorus came to me first, before any of the lyrics in the verses. It outlined my central concern while writing the psalm and influenced the direction the theme would ultimately take. I didn't want that look on my face, the one you always had when you came home. That face felt like the one you would make when you hated your job and family. If the purpose of working this hard was to provide for a family, what's the point in working so hard that it makes you unavailable for that family? I was now at a stage in this journey where I was beginning to submit to the idea that I was just wrong. That you cannot provide for a family with your head in the clouds, chasing selfish dreams. Adopting this face and working your fingers to the bone so that your kids could grow up without want was not only a typical expectation of a man, but it was the only honest means of being able to provide reliably. As the song came together, I decided to record it. I never write my lyrics down. I just sing nonsense until it starts to materialize like the force flowing through a Jedi. It's always an embarrassing process because I do it with headphones on. To the outside observer, all they hear is my tone-deaf, a capella gibberish. I packed my equipment and headed up the mountain behind your house for privacy. I recorded the song in the driver's seat of my truck overlooking a tiny Mormon town at night below me. To describe the scene as beautiful is quite the stretch. So that part in the song refers to the city lights I was used to in much bigger cities where I had previously pursued my dreams. They twinkle on and then fade away at dawn. The transition from night to day represented that, at some point, imagination must die, and we all must come back down from having our heads in the clouds. The excitement of nightlife ends, and everyone heads to work in a single file line. The final verse represents the idea that I'd never grow old if I could stay in the clouds but I was submitting to the notion that the time had come for me to settle down. I was relieved when the date finally came for me to leave for basic. You and I headed to Salt Lake City, where I'd be flying out. We spent some time together, which was nice, but a feeling of impending doom hovered over me. I knew I'd soon have my face in the dirt being yelled at by a drill sergeant who I assumed would be similar to those I'd seen on television. Several months before our night in Salt Lake City, a friend in Austin had gotten excited by the time on the clock.
2: It's eleven eleven. she squealed. Make a wish.
1: I hadn't heard this before, but I played along. After that day, it seemed that I just so happened to look at the clock at 11-11 several times a week, day and night. My wishes would focus on the achievable and short-term goals that would help me become the person I wanted to be. My desires became daily affirmations, and I grew superstitious about them. When we checked into our hotel, and they gave us room 111, I took it as a sign from the universe that I was on the right track. Time was passing faster the closer I got to leaving for basic. When you dropped me off at the airport, it felt like the past three months had fit inside a few weeks. The clock began to stretch as I transitioned to government time. We sat in the airport waiting area for several uneventful hours. We were eventually moved to the next holding area and waited for another several hours. I had assumed that by now. I'd have already been staring back at the bulging neck veins of an irate drill sergeant. Every step of the onboarding process was so long and monotonous that I had completely let my guard down when the drill sergeants did finally arrive. We were on another bus, driving onto base, and everyone we had interacted with up to this point had been relatively pleasant. The bus came to a stop, and the internal lights turned on. It was 10 o'clock at night and I stretched my arms wide and let a deep yawn close my eyes. When I opened them, an angry man in a forest ranger looking hat had prowled his way onto the bus.